Today's Words and Nerds podcast is sponsored by The Accomplice by Steve Kavanagh. If you were married to a serial killer, would you know? Steve Kavanagh's follow-up to the best-selling 13, 50-50 and The Devil's Advocate is his twistiest yet. The Sandman serial killings have been solved. Daniel Miller murdered 14 people before he vanished. His wife Carrie now faces trial as his accomplice. The FBI, the district attorney, the media and everyone in America believe she knew and helped cover up her husband's crimes. The only thing between a life in jail or free Freedom is Eddie Flynn and his team. Steve Kavanagh is the master of the twist and The Accomplice will keep you guessing right to the last page. The Accomplice is released in Australia on the 26th of July. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm Uh. feeling sick. Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Hi, folks. Welcome to Words and Nerds. If you're thinking I don't sound like regular host Danny V, that's because this is a takeover episode. My name is Alex Duke, and I'm a West Australian crime writer. Joining me today is a certifiable giant of the crime fiction genre. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author who has been twice nominated for both the Edgar Award and the Seamus Award. He's not only published dozens of novels, but he's also had a long career in television, having written for shows including Monk, Diagnosis Murder, Martial Law, and even Baywatch. Movieland, the latest mystery novel in his hugely popular Eve Ronan series, is out on 21st of June. He joins me now from Los Angeles, California. Lee Goldberg, welcome to Words and Nerds. Thank you. I have never been called a giant in anything except a giant failure, giant fraud and giant pain in the ass. Well, I mean, I only just met you, so I can't really speak too much to that. But perhaps at the end of the interview, I'll I'll let you know my opinion on that. Yeah, you may have to revise the intro to (laughs) smug, arrogant, California writer, producer. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. So, um, well, I have given you a, a bio there, so our listeners um, should know who you are. But for those who are only uninitiated into the wonderful world of Lee Goldberg, could you please introduce us to Eve Ronan? Eve Ronan is the youngest female homicide detective in Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department's history, and she does not deserve the job, and she knows it. She got it by virtue of a viral video of her taking down a Hollywood star who was beating up a woman outside a restaurant. And it happened at a time when the LA County Sheriff's Department was in the midst of a scandal. They wanted to take advantage of the popularity she had and she was able to leverage a promotion out of it. And now she's in a job she knows she doesn't have the experience for. She's resented by her colleagues and she's got the eye of the media on her and she's got to somehow succeed. And that's the the situation she's in. I was just really tired of these middle-aged, weary, tortured uh, male homicide detectives. I want to do something a little bit different. Hmm. All right. So on that, um, I'm wondering if you could talk about what, 
what is it that people what do people what do readers connect with with Eve because something I um I just I just finished Movie Land uh yesterday and really really enjoyed it um but it seemed to me what struck me is that she's sort of at her most um politically irritating <laughs> well but it's somewhat somewhat scheming in a way um in she she knows how to get her own way now so what what is it about Eve that people connect with do you think I think they connect with her because she's more like them than Harry Bosch is or how shall is or you know, all these other uh, detectives that are popular in mystery fiction or John Rebus. She's not sure of herself. She doesn't have the skill. She's not an inductive genius. Uh, people don't admire her. She, she makes huge mistakes and she's not a perfect person. And she, unlike so many characters in detective fiction, she's not haunted by a tragic past, the serial killer who executed her family or, or some other outlandish crap. Her background is like yours and mine. She has a mom, she has siblings, she has work disputes. She has a relatively normal life that readers can relate to directly. They can see themselves in Eve Ronan. I'm not sure we can all see ourselves in John Rebus or Harry Bosch or necessarily Kinsey Milhone. Um, I think that's her appeal, that she's not perfect. And I think readers enjoy sort of cringing at her mistakes. Mm. And you mentioned that she's, she's scheming and it's not that she's scheming, but that she is determined and hell bent and relentless and doesn't let anything get in her way. And although she hates politics and claims not to play it, she's actually quite good at it. So in some ways she's a hypocrite, which we all are too. So, mm. um, I think that makes her appealing. I, I know from talking to readers that they relate to her on, on a personal level, particularly her relationship with her siblings and her, her parents, that, that she isn't a loner with no family connections. She, she has a life. She has responsibilities. She has bills to pay. Uh, and I think the other thing that makes her appealing and that readers relate to is that there's a lot of humor in the books. It's like in our lives, there's a lot of humor. And I find these police procedurals that are relentlessly dark and don't have a shred of humor to be woefully unrealistic. I think even in the darkest times in our lives, there's always some humor, certainly in my life. Mm. On, on that, um, one of the things I like about your, your work um, is your, I'm doing air quotes, author voice. Um, I think that you've, I think when you're, when a reader is reading a Lee Goldberg novel, you they kind of know they're reading a Lee Goldberg novel, but at the same time, you have quite a light touch with the voice. It never feels overbearing, if that makes sense. I wonder, and I, I mean, the humour is a really big part of that. Um, so I wonder, like, if you have to put a lot of effort into making it feel like that, or does it just kind of come naturally to you? It is funny you bring up the issue of voice, because I gave voice a lot of thought before I started the first Eve Ronan novel, uh, Lost Hills uh, a couple of years ago. I have a distinctive voice. And what I wanted to do with Eve Ronan was to remove the authorial voice. I wanted to capture the experience of reading a screenplay or watching a TV show. I wanted you to forget that you were reading. I wanted to pull myself out of it. And in a sense, just do just the facts, ma'am. Just enough of my prose to give you the situation and let you fill in the blanks. The only time the authorial voice really comes in is maybe the first few paragraphs of each book. But otherwise, if something, if there's going to be a clever observation or something funny said or a metaphor made, I put it in a character's mouth. 
And if the character couldn't say it or think it, I cut it. So this actually was much harder for me to pull myself out because I would write something I thought was, oh, that's clever. That's a wonderful insight. And then realize I was drawing attention to the writing, drawing attention to me, and I would cut it. So I actually found it harder to be lean and tight and, and very careful about the voice than letting myself have not necessarily free reign, but to, to write in the same voice I've used for so many years. And to my surprise, the Lost Hills, the first Steve Ronan book, Lost Hills, was by far my most commercially and critically acclaimed book. So it's kind of a slap in the face. They like it better when I'm not there. <laughs> well, I, pull, I mean, and the irony is, of course, I'm there. I'm there in everything the characters say and do. I'm there in the plot. I just pulled myself out as an, as an omniscient narrator, so to speak. Um, I, I did not go for the clever phrase uh, or the, the clever metaphor in describing a house, a car, a person or whatever. Mm. I, I let my characters drive each scene. And I did each scene from the point of view of a character rather than me. Yeah, and that, if you want my authorial voice in a big way, then it would be the, the Ian Ludlow thrillers, true fiction, killer thriller, fake truth, and, and the books I wrote with Janet Ivanovich. There, my voice is, is very loud and very me, and you're, you're very well aware you're reading a Lee Goldberg book, I think. Sure. No, it's, a, it's an interesting um, approach uh, because, you know, obviously the, uh, what would you say, the... Um, the main event, I suppose, in uh, Los Angeles crime fiction would probably be Raymond Chandler, which is very, very stylized, has a very rich voice and, um, you know, can is obviously they're, they're amazing. They're amazing novels and there's um, so much to enjoy in them. But I think the, you know, those books were written so long ago that they've, it's almost like that kind of uh, the, the clever Afraid, like doing that too much in these sort of stories, it becomes a bit of a parody almost. It's funny you mentioned Raymond Chandler because when I set about writing these books, I asked myself, what the hell am I going to write about Los Angeles or police in Los Angeles that hasn't been done to death by writers better than me? Raymond Chandler, Michael Connolly, Robert Crace, Joseph Wamba. I mean, what could I do? And, and that's sort of where Eve Ronan was born. I have a woman who's 23 years old as the as the protagonist she's not a an established professional homicide detective so that's a difference but god if i had her walking down the same streets that bosch has walked and joseph wamba's you know bumper morgan all those characters have walked i'll just be making metaphors or, or observations that aren't nearly as sharp or interesting as the ones that have come before me so i set the book in an area of los angeles that hasn't been written about before the Lost Hills jurisdiction, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which encompasses Calabasas, Lost Hills, Malibu, Topanga, the Santa Monica Mountains, uh, you know, areas that may have been touched on briefly at times by these other authors, but hasn't really been explored, which allowed me to not bump into cliches everywhere my character went. You know, not that I'd be seeing it fresh and so would, would readers. So I, I like to think that I have a, a fresh take on Los Angeles that Raymond Chandler and the others haven't had. But also in my books, Eve Ronan is a media darling. There's a TV series being based on, made based on her life. It allows me to talk about the constant intersection here in Los Angeles between fiction and reality. Because yes, we have movie studio lots, but every single street in Los Angeles is also a back lot for a movie. There's virtually nowhere in Los Angeles I can drive that I haven't seen a TV show that hasn't been someplace else. 
a hmm. fictional place. And I think the cops here, I know the cops here, are influenced by the fictional portrayal of this city and what people expect from them based on what they see on TV. So, and, and also now everyone's got a phone and everything can become a media event in a split second. So there is a constant balancing act that has to be walked here between reality and fiction. And that gives me a fresh point of view that I can uh, play with with these characters. It sets me apart from Raymond Chandler and all those others. That's not quite the question you asked, but I, I do try to avoid the kind of observations, the kind of hard-boiled pulp take that Chandler um, had towards Los Angeles or that others have towards other cities, so Dashiell Hammett with San Francisco and, mm. and, and what have you. There is, There does seem to be something about Los Angeles specifically that makes it quite a great setting for crime fiction. What, what is it about LA, do you think, that it makes, for, that it's been such a rich setting for crime fiction for so many decades? Because it is a city that's major, I, it's not, I should say it's major industry, but one of its major industries is manufacturing fantasy. So all the movies and TV shows we watch, if they're not shot here, they're conceived here. This is where all the writers and producers and directors are. So our collective culture at least in terms of television and film, comes from here, comes from a place that should not exist. There's no water here in Los Angeles. We're in a drought. It's in a, a miserable place for living. Yet we create this fantasy of, of palm trees and lush living where, where, where it shouldn't exist. The, the notion of this is a place where dreams can come true, where you can create your dream and live it, or at least convince yourself you're living it, underscores all of our ways of life here, no matter who you are. And I think that seeps into the, the fiction. Los Angeles is a construct. It's a construct that's reinvented in every TV show you watch, every sitcom. And that's the other thing. If you watch a sitcom, it doesn't matter if it's set in New York or Indianapolis or Florida. It's here in LA. It's shot here in Los Angeles. So the Los Angeles point of view, the Los Angeles culture, the Los Angeles fantasy imbues every aspect of the popular culture that we are consuming in enormous quantities. So I, I think that dream factory is, is a large portion of it. But there's one other aspect of Southern California that's influential. We're also a war factory. All the big um, Lockheed Martin and, and, and other um, companies that make airlines, air, airplanes and fighter jets and bombs are here in Los Angeles and Southern California. So here we make dreams, we also destroy things. So it's, <laughs> it's also that, that contrast, that, that balance. Um, it's a land of dreams, it's also a land of horrors. It's, uh, it's, it's a land where we have no seasons. It's, it's, in some ways it's like Australia, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but you know, I, I know that I read you know, Gary Disher. I oh. love the, how, how the world of Australia, whether it's his, police procedurals or his fantastic Wyatt novels, you can't help but get a sense you're in a world completely different from the world we're living in, and, and it affects every aspect of what everybody does. Because we manufacture dreams here, we also manufacture the ridiculous expectations that people try to live up to. So Los Angeles has an outsized influence on the world that, that belies its actual footprint in, in terms of population and land it takes up. It has a huge footprint in, in popular culture worldwide. Sure. I'm, I'm very pleased you mentioned Gary Disher. He's my, I think he's probably my favorite author, just of, of, of them all. Um, is, is absolutely he dedicated a book to me. 
Really? Which one? Yes. I, the one that was just called Wyatt. It was after, sure. you know, the, the long, I think the first, the first six Wyatt books. And then there was no Wyatt novel for like 10 years. And yeah. then he wrote his first Wyatt novel after that. And I was shocked to see that it was dedicated to me. It's like, holy sh crap. Um, I love Gary Disher's books. And I've been trying my best to, to push him here in the United States. Uh, I blurred one of his um, Wyatt reprints here in, in the United States through Soho. And uh, many years ago, he came here on a, on a book tour and I took him all around Los Angeles. We had a great time. He's a terrific author. I just think it's a crime against humanity that he's not a global uh, success, that he hasn't broken through the way he should. I couldn't agree more. I don't, I mean, no offense to, to uh, is it Jane Harper? I think her name yeah. is, she wrote Dry. And yeah. I've read her books and they're fine. She somehow has gotten all the acclaim that, that Gary Disher should get. I mean, there's some authors who've broken through from Australia who are good, but I don't think come close to Gary Disher. I mean, I think he's in the same league as Lawrence Block and Donald Westlake and, mm. um, he, and certainly Michael Connolly. Um, he's just so good and he's got a wicked sense of humor. I just like that he can shift between literary novels, police procedurals, heist novels. He's just so young adult in novels. Mm. He's and so prolific. I'm, I'm like three books behind on yeah. him. I, yeah, well, I think, I mean, I have a lot of love for Jane Harper and The Dry specifically, but I think um, the, the ultimate, in some ways, the tragedy of uh, Gary Disher was that he was, he's, he was too early. He was publishing for decades before the Australian publishing market even realised that they, Australians have always, I think, had this um, this thing of thinking, uh, well, if it's from Australia, then it can't be very good. And so there's only, it's only in the past five or 10 years that people have actually really started saying like, actually, no, this Australian stuff can be really, really great. And that was about the time Jane Harper started publishing. And so I, I think for, for Gary, the... Um, maybe the the issue was he was doing excellent work at a time when the you know the market here just didn't even consider australian fiction as a as something to be worth their time well, not just australian fiction but australian television mystery road is fantastic i love the movie i love the sequel and i love the two tv series that that take place between the first two movies um they're just wonderful and they haven't broken through here which also shocks me um i just love the mystery road yeah, they're very franchise. Cool. Very good. Very good stuff. What are some of your other favorite locations around the world or in the US um, for crime fiction? Well, it's funny. The, the books I wrote with Janet Ivanovich were international uh, thrillers. So I went all over the world with those. I went to Germany and Belgium and China, Australia. I, I went I went everywhere for those books. And you know, I just I like to travel. It, one of the horrible things about COVID is it's locked me in my, in my house. Um, I've, I've written quite a bit about Germany only because I worked there for a while. So I, I got to see the country in a way that we in the United States usually don't see Germany. Germany does a terrible job of presenting itself to American travelers. We all think of it as the Cold War, bleak, gray place when it's actually just a beautiful country with some of the friendliest people. And I came to Australia for a book I didn't end up writing. It's a long story, but I went to Australia for a few weeks on a research trip and I, I loved it. I also spent a lot of time in Tasmania and uh, I still want to go back and write that book that I researched. I've got all the, all the research for it here on my, on my bookcase still. It was, it was fascinating. Um, I just like traveling. I, like, I, I don't believe that 
it's a good idea if you're writing international thrillers to do it all from guidebooks and Google Earth. Mm. I think there's something even I shouldn't even say world travel, even if you're writing domestically, get out there and, and, and go to the places you're writing about because nothing beats boots on the ground to mm. pick up the little detail, the smell, the people, the voice, the food, whatever that will make your location come to life. Because all that's all it takes one believable real detail that will hook the reader into thinking, oh, he's telling the truth. And then you can just BS all the rest. You need them to suspend their disbelief. And if they buy into the truth you're creating, then they're going to be with you the whole rest of the way and you get away with murder. I There's a lot of stuff in my Eve Ronan police procedurals that's inaccurate and geographical details that I fudge. And yet I still get Tons of mail from law enforcement professionals saying, oh, your books are brutally realistic and so, so true. And I know it's not you know, that, I've, that I've made stuff up. But to me, that's that's the key to go to a place and find the detail that rings true because it is true. And then the rest will will ring true. It's like all the best lies are based on a little bit of truth. Well, it's the same in, in telling stories. Um, but as far as favorite places to write about, I think if there's a place I've written about the most outside of California and Germany is probably Hawaii. I think I've done four or five books set in Hawaii just because I love going there and it's a great way to write off a trip. I'm going to do a research trip to Kauai. And then if I'm ever brought in by the IRS, I can drop Mr. Monk Goes to Hawaii and, and all the other books that I've done set in Hawaii uh, on their desk and say, I'll be back after you've read them. <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> well, I think in the five books I did with Jan Ivanovich, because the characters globetrot all over in each book. I think in three of the five, they were in Hawaii. So at least for a few chapters. I'm reminded of those Adam Sandler vehicles where it'll be like Adam Sandler and a bunch of his best friends. And they're like, oh, we're all going to make a movie set in Hawaii this year. Let's yes. <laughs> and so Netflix will pay for a trip to Hawaii for everybody. Why not? <laughs> At the four seasons. Yeah, great. In movie land, um, to, to, come back to, the, to come back to that, um, Eve deals with the, the case of the Malibu sniper. Now, I'm, I obviously don't want to get into any spoilers, um, but in the, the acknowledgement section, you do uh, point out that it was based off uh, a, a real case. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, what the, the process of kind of diving into that was? Well, it happened literally in my own backyard. One of the convenient things about COVID, we were locked down in our homes and the Eve Ronan novels are set in my neighborhood. So I didn't have to go far to research them. And I wrote this particular book during the uh, height of the pandemic. And I just turned my attention to something I knew was happening right outside my door. These shootings have been going on for a few years. And in fact, there was a news conference about the shootings, I think, two years ago. And I attended it thinking it might be good for an Eve Ronan novel down the road. And if you go online at some of the news reports from local stations here, you can see me in the audience because I'm like the youngest guy there. Everyone else seemed like 110 years old who was in the audience. Yeah. It was, it's an interesting story. It's a bunch of uh, seemingly unrelated shootings that happened in and around Malibu Creek State Park. And Malibu Creek State Park is sort of balanced in that world I was telling you about Malibu Creek State Park for years was a movie backlog where they shot Planet of the Apes and MASH and uh, it's a million war movies and Westerns. And then it was donated to the state and it became a park. But a lot of those sets and remnants of those sets are still there. And if you walk through the park, you can recognize, oh, that's the lagoon from Planet of the Apes or that's the MASH set or 
um, that's Logan's run, whatever. So in a way, and then and, and for many years, the, um, there was a Western set that remained there that burned down during the Woolsey fire. So it's a place that's real. It's, it's a wilderness, but also it's a totally fraudulent wilderness. It's been Lost Horizon. It's been Shangri-La. It's been Alien Worlds. It's been Cambodia. It's been all kinds of places. So what a great place to set a murder and a crime story because it parallels the friction between reality and fiction that, that's in a constant in Eve's life and in her story. So it was, it was irresistible to me. Plus, I like basing my novels on real crimes because then I can call upon the actual detectives and forensic people and get their advice and, and learn how they investigated the case and then fictionalize it enough to serve my needs. Sort of the, I don't know if you have it down in Australia, but the TV series Law and Order, where every episode okay. is ripped from the headlines. Mm-hmm. You, you, you recognize the story they're, they're basing their episode on, but they take it in a whole different direction. There has been an arrest in the Malibu Creek State Park shootings here in Los Angeles my story does not mimic that arrest. And there's a lot of a doubt questions about whether they got the right person. And there's all sorts of other controversies surrounding this investigation. The actual detectives who investigated are now suing the sheriff's department for all sorts of things. And it's, it's a, it's a giant scandal. So I, I simplified it in some ways and made it more, um, tied it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that it's more satisfying for the reader, but it's not so satisfying for those of us who live here. But it was, I think I would have been malpractice if I did a, a, a novel about the Lost Hill Sheriff's Department and did not do the Malibu Creek shootings. And there's another incident that happened here that I'm going to have to address if I do more Evronin novels. You know, that's the, the helicopter crash of um, Kobe Bryant, which happened in Calabasas and captured the attention of the whole world. I wouldn't make it Kobe Bryant or deal with an athlete, but literally the helicopter crashed on the hillside below my house. I mean, it, it was right here. And I was able to reach out to the NTSB investigators and um, some of the other folks involved in that investigation. And they were very open to me about the unusual aspects of that case. And I actually wanted to write about it for the book that became Movie Land, but my publisher thought it was too soon that even though I was going to heavily fictionalize um, the story, they still thought it was too close to the recent uh, death that it would cause too much pain for readers. The, The interesting thing to me was the helicopter crash it was with a worldwide um, celebrity becomes the investigation of a Los Angeles County homicide detective by jurisdiction. So you have the FBI, you have the NTSB, you have all these other people who want to take part in the investigation, but it's an LA County Sheriff's Department case. So Eve would find herself in the middle of an international media maelstrom while trying to solve a very, very difficult case, which at first looks like an accident, but turns out to be murder. So that will be, if there are more Ebronin novels, which depends on whether all you people buy Movie Land, that'll probably be the next one or, the, or the, the one after that. Is that is it a concern that you have to, you take into account whenever you draw things from, you know, real life or the headlines with these kind of things? Because, you know, there's real trauma, real pain. Um, is, that, is that a concern that you, you want to be, um, what you want to be concerned about? I fictionalize these stories to such a degree that they aren't recognizable as the original cases, with the exception of the Malibu Creek shooting, because I said it in Malibu Creek State Park. But um, my first Eve Ronan novel, Lost Hills, was based on a real case that happened in Ohio. And I moved it to Los Angeles and I changed so many aspects of that case. And 
So nobody involved in that case is going to feel that I exploited them or or going to feel that they're recognizable in my story. My second Evrona novel, Bone Canyon, wasn't so much based on a case that really happened, but an a situation or occurrences that really happened. After the Wolsey fire burned through uh, Malibu Creek State Park and, and, and all the Santa Monica Mountains, it exposed a lot of dead bodies. It exposed a lot of secrets. For, for instance, they, would, they found at the bottom of the canyons cars. You know, people who had disappeared years ago, they finally found the bodies at the bottom of these canyons. There had been so much growth hiding these things that when it burned away, it revealed so much. There have been um, gang members that have been murdered and tossed into canyons and their bodies were caught by shrubs and they decomposed and the bones were stuck in these shrubs for years. When the shrubs burned away, the bones tumbled down in the people's backyards. So they came back after the fires and found these old bones in their backyards and swimming pool. So I, I just thought that was such a, a, a rich area for me to explore. So it wasn't based on an actual case, but it was based on something that really happened here in, in Los Angeles. Um, and Gated Prey, the, the third book, was based on uh, a couple of things. We've, we've had a lot of um, follow home robberies here in Calabasas. And some of the robbers came from out of state or out of the country just to burglarize homes here. I, I use that. But also we had a horrifying shootout, not in Calabasas, but in Los Angeles involving a Trader Joe's. That's a, a grocery store here. And, and some innocent people, the Trader Joe's got shot in the, in the crossfire between the law enforcement and the, um, the bad guys who weren't robbing the, the Trader Joe's. They were fleeing from a different crime and ran into the grocery store. And that's where the, the climax of this particular case happened. So I use those two events as the inspiration for um, Gated Prey. And there's another, and I don't want to give it away, but there's another subplot in Gated Prey that comes directly from a case I heard about I attend annually a homicide investigators training conference in uh, Wisconsin that's not open to civilians. And at these conferences, they present cases and that, that force detectives to look at homicide investigation in a different way and to learn from other homicide detectives mistakes and successes. And, and I heard about a case there that just totally shocked me. It was just so bizarre and, and unusual and sad and, um, and how it was discovered. I just, I soaked it up. I talked to the detectives. I talked to the, the paramedics involved. I talked to the medical examiner involved. I talked to the prosecutor. And then I totally fictionalized it and moved it to Los Angeles. So I learned a lot. And again, when I do all this research, when I talk to cops and I talk to medical examiners, and I attend homicide investigator training conferences. There's an enormous desire for me to show off to put all those details in the book so I can prove to you, the reader, how smart I am and all the work I put into it and all the time I've done research. I hate it when writers do that. The way to really use that information is to just drop in an occasional real detail, mm. a stunning piece of forensics or procedure or a way a cop thinks, and then let all the other research I've done inform what I write in subtle ways I'm not even aware of until later when I read my own book hmm. uh, in the copy editing stage, don't show off. Don't, don't show all. I mean, I can't tell you how often I'll put all this stuff in the book and then cut reams of it later. I, I, when I'll cut three paragraphs of forensic stuff when just one line will do. Hmm. Or okay. well, it's like what you were talking about before with um, the location stuff, you know, it's just, just a little, a little, um, 
a little bit of spice in a sense, a little something really specific that adds a bit of color. And that just, that does so much to make it work. There's a, a writer I won't name who does police procedurals. And this writer will tell you the color of the paper used in the murder books, what type of three hole punch they use for the paper, what kind of pen, the file number, that all this stuff that just shows off that the writer has done his or her research, but doesn't advance the story, doesn't reveal character, doesn't create conflict. Yes, we know these are realistic. You don't need to hit us over the head with, I don't really care what size paperclip the police actually use to hold their papers together. Just say it's a damn paperclip. If it's even necessary to tell us there's a paperclip, that paperclip better be used to kill a ninja assassin who <laughs> dives through the window in the next scene or don't mention the paperclip at all. Yeah, Chekhov's paperclip, right? Yes, I'm a big believer in that. If the paperclip doesn't come back in some way, don't tell us about the damn paperclip. So, um, well, we don't have too much more too much more time. I, I do want to let you go in a minute, but um, I just wanted to ask you, you started out, I believe, working as a reporter. Um, how did that uh, impact your, you know, your, your writing, whether for television or uh, novels? My background as a reporter had an enormous and continuing impact on me as a writer. First of all, I should say that both my parents were reporters. My father was a television anchorman. So he was on television every night, talking in this very false voice, using the same insincere smile that you, the listener, can't see on my face right now, but the interviewer now can. And my mom was a gossip columnist. She went to parties for a living and wrote about them. And I'm going to tell you kind of a long answer to this story. When I was at, my parents divorced when I was young and my mom was going to these parties and writing about them, but she also was like a real party girl. She was the, I don't know if you know who Paris Hilton is, but she was the Paris Hilton of her day. Yeah. If your party didn't count, if my mom wasn't there half naked and my mom was at some <laughs> party and ran off to Santa Barbara with a guy and she got fogged in. She couldn't come back to San Francisco to write her column. So she called me and said, you've got to sneak into the newspaper get my reporter's notebooks and write my column and file it and don't let anyone see you or I get fired. So I snuck into the newspaper and I wrote my mom's column in her voice and no one noticed. When my mom got back, I was a smart ass. I said, your job's not so hard. Anybody with a high school, beginning high school education could do your job. And she said, you're right. So she started going on vacations and leaving me her notes to write her column while she was away. And I was so mad about it. You know, it's like I was sneaking into the newspaper late at night and, and I had to write these columns. I thought she was taking advantage of me and it was exploitation. She did me an enormous favor. I learned how to write in someone else's voice, not my own. To see the world through someone else's eyes and mimic it, that helped me enormously in television when I was writing shows that other people created, but I had to copy their way of telling stories and helped me learn about characters. Later on, I put myself through college by writing about the entertainment industry for newspapers and magazines in the United States. And I would adopt my dad's television anchorman voice for phone interviews so people wouldn't know I was 17 years old. And it, it taught me how to take a whole bunch of information, boil it down, come up with a point of view for the story, come up with a lead paragraph, how to arrange the quotes, to deliver the story the way I wanted. But I couldn't make quotes up. I had to use the quotes that were given to me. But it taught me a lot about editing and structure and voice and point of view and making a deadline. I had lots of deadlines. And I learned about editing. A lot of my stories were rewritten or they got cut. And I had to learn quite a bit about 
um, being precise about dealing with editors, dealing with editing, how to self-edit, how to make a deadline. So the techniques I learned as a reporter not only influence the way I write, but certainly how I talk to homicide detectives, medical examiners, experts in all walks of life. I mean, to write the books I write, I don't just talk to law enforcement people. I'll talk to currency experts. I'll talk to people who do antiques. I'll talk to, I mean, who knows what my world will be in that I'm writing about, you know, rare coins, um, asphalt, um, gourmet cooking. I mean, I've written about so many things over the years that I know nothing about being a lifeguard, being a werewolf. <laughs> I mean, I did diagnose executive producer uh, the principal writer of Diagnosis Murder for many years. I had to write about so many things involving medicine and interview doctors, but also every episode took place in a different world. I had to learn about whatever world we were writing about. So I'm constantly interviewing experts and I got to get them comfortable with me, get them to be open with me and tell me what I need without me beating the, what I need out of them. So yeah. yes, it, it was invaluable to my work as a author and as a screenwriter. That's great. And I, lo I love that story about your writing your mom's gossip column. That's, that's brilliant. Um, all right, everyone. Well, you heard Lee earlier. Um, if you've not read any Eve Ronan novels, they're absolutely wonderful. They're really, really cool. Um, but will there be another one? Well, depends how many, how the sales for Movieland goes. So what I would like everyone to do as a personal favor to me is go out and buy a copy. So then Lee will be forced by the sales <laughs> to write another Eve Ronan novel. Um, that would be great if you could do me that favor, everybody. Um, Lee, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I cannot wait to see what you do next. I can't either because I'm a complete fraud. I always feel my last book is the one that's going to reveal me as the fraud I know I am. And I'll be working at you know McDonald's soon. Well, even, even if you are working at McDonald's, I'm sure you'll do it very well. Thank you. 